Welcome to Training Room Talk, where we discuss all things performance, rehab, and education. Welcome back to Training Room Talk. I'm Dr. John Herding. I'm here with Rob Rubina, Dr. Nick Pergini, and Dr. Ray Carr. And today we're going to talk about the all-important question of how do you train power without Olympic lifts, right? Um, this could get pretty heated. There's always two sides of the spectrum, and people defend ollie lifts to the core. Um, but, yeah, so today our topic, Rob's going to start us off with how he trains power without always using Olympic lifts in some of his athletes. It's great, John. Thank you. I think um, first caveat I'm going to start off with. I um, do not have a lot of experience learning or doing Olympic lifting. Um, I think I have no problem with Olympic lifting. I think they're great exercises. They do a fantastic job at getting athletes stronger and more explosive. Um, just but my experience when I first started and all my internships and you know, volunteer times, observing, um, has been pretty much through powerlifting. Um, that's pretty much how I learned how to be a strength coach. So don't have a lot of experience doing Olympic lifting. So that's probably one of the reasons why I don't utilize um, those exercises in my strength and conditioning programs. Um, so I think, it's, I think that's important to understand, like, my background in strength and conditioning. Um, now getting to the topic... You know, how do we train power without Olympic lifting? Uh, there's a lot of other ways to train power without Olympic lifting. Um, I look at it pretty much two ways. One way is which direction are we learning to produce power? Do we play volleyball and basketball and need to produce power going up and down? Do we need to produce power going horizontally? Or do we need to produce power going frontal plane, transverse plane, rotationally? Um, so to answer those questions, let's start off with vertical jumping. So if your goal is to jump as high as possible and slam dunk a basketball, which, I mean, whose goal isn't to slam dunk a basketball? It's my goal, obviously, too. But um, So exercise I'm doing to improve vertical jumping are, I mean, there's so many variations of, of vertical jumping exercises. Basic progressions are just hands on hips, vertical jumps, working on sticking to landing. Second progression would be being repeated. Uh, you can even regress it even more to just like learning to jump rope. Kids can't do low-level plyometric jump rope anymore. It's embarrassing. So, you know, learning, teaching jump rope, low-level plyometrics, being bouncy through the feet, um, you know, hoppy. These are cues that I always give athletes, especially during repeated jumps. So, you know, again, bilateral, single-leg exercise, single-leg hopping, in place. Anything in place is usually where I start people. Um, you then would progress, I would progress to some sort of like box jump where you're jumping on top of something, where you're landing at the peak. So there's no, again, deceleration component to it. Um, next progression would be more so hurdle hopping, again, single hopping, and then progressing to more repeated. Uh, I'm a big fan of repeated hurdle hops. I think they do a fantastic job at producing power and, and producing that springiness um, that everyone's looking to uh, promote. Um, so again, these are all body weight, vertical jumping, power exercises. Um, you know, more so 
Um, you can load them up very similar to you would uh, Olympic lifting variations. You can hold a light dumbbell goblet in your hands and jump as high as you can. You can hold dumbbells at your side and jump as high as you can. You're still producing high amounts of force with some sort of light load, still producing high amounts of power. So, you know, th that would be my vertical jumping, non-Olympic lifting. Probably those are my big ones that I always use. Um, horizontal, so jumping forward. Um, my the, the first two that I always come to are just broad jumps. You know, broad jumps, body weight. You can throw a vest on. You can do repeated. Um, however many jumps. You ask a kid to do five broad jumps in a row. That To me, that's, that's pretty athletic, and that's pretty hard to do. Um, next would be some sort of kettlebell swing. Love kettlebell swings. Fantastic power exercise. Really teaches hip explosion. Um, again, and that's a, that would be an exercise that has low to moderate load, which would be very similar to an um, Olympic lift. Um, other ones would be trap bar deadlift jumps. Um, again, they're a little horizontal, a little vertical as well. You're jumping forward, but you're in a kind of a hinge position. So that's kind of like your hybrid vertical horizontal power-based exercise. Um, so that, you know, those would be my, my, my horizontal-based movements. And then frontal plane, for all your baseball players out there, this is where you make your money. This is where you throw gas and throw ched, is rotational med ball tosses. That, that's where you, you got to spend some time. Um, there's some good data on, on um, you know, rotational power and it's carry over to throwing velocity. So, like, if you want to throw hard, throw a med ball into the wall as hard as you possibly can. Um, don't choose a med ball that's too heavy. A lot of my younger athletes think they can do, like, a scoop toss with a 10-pound med ball and it's slower than molasses. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're not producing high power. Um, so, again, you know, if you play a rotational sport, baseball, softball, tennis, lacrosse, you know, all of these sports that require some, some rotation and some, some control, toss a med ball on the wall as hard as you can. All right. Um, lateral skater jumps, another fantastic frontal plane rotational-based movement. Again, where you learn to produce power going sideways. Um, you know, um, these, again, these are all body weight, low load exercises. Um, again, you can throw a vest on. You can hold a dumbbell. You can add band resistance. You can... You know, add some light load to these you know, slow, I'm sorry, low load lateral sled drags for speed. Like these are all very similar loading schemes that you would have in a, an Olympic lift, which would produce, again, high amounts of power in the direction that you want to go in. So, um, and again, another big one that I probably didn't talk about is light, fast sled pushing and just sprinting. All of these are, again, low load, high velocity, high power movements that do a fantastic job at producing speed and power, which is what everyone wants to do. Um, so you have to spend time at the velocities you want to run if you want to run fast. Yes. If you want to run fast, don't run slow. It's literally that simple. I have kids that do whatever exercise. I'll do like a, a broad jump to a sprint or a hurdle hop to sprint. And I catch kids all the time lollygagging. And I'll yell down the, down the turf, stop lollygagging. Sprint. Lollygag. Don't lollygag. Sprint. If you want to be fast, sprint fast. Same thing doing agility drills. Don't do agility drills at 60% intensity. You're not going to change your ability to change direction. Because in game, are you going to be at 60% going after a, a ball? No. You're going to be max intent, high speed, 
That's another word I use a lot. Remember all throws. Throw it through the wall. Touch your head to the ceiling. These are all external cues that help produce high amounts of force. And I think that's a huge thing in rehab where um, when in some of the professional teams that are tracking like how many times a guy runs as fast as he can or how many guys at the times they hit like max speed um, in practice dictates how they practice because if you're not spending time running fast, that's where those see hamstring strains happen. Like Because if you're not hitting max velocity in practice or in training, but you're trying to go do it in games, your tissue's not prepared to go max velocity in a full speed sprint to chase down a ball. So I know that's an, a predictor of injury. Like You need to spend time at these higher levels of performance to prevent injury and then improve performance and, and take it to the next level. Um, so Rob, when you're picking weights for some of those things, like you said a lot of them are low load, like how are you picking med ball weights? Are you going the heaviest med ball you can go for some of the rotational movements? Or is there um, you know, kind of a solution to how you're picking what weights yeah, people are using? Yeah, that's a great question. I think from a general recommendation standpoint, any rotational toss, whether it's a shot put, a scoop, step behind, um, high school athletes were doing four to six pounds. Um, not, why not 20? Because it's too slow. It's too slow and you're not producing high amounts of force. So college pro, scoop tosses were maybe doing, again, six to 10. I say six to 10 because some pro guys, believe it or not, um, might not be able to throw a med ball really, really hard. So it all comes back to how hard are they actually doing the exercise. And that's, that's one of my biggest gauges is, is I wanna see how hard they're throwing the med ball. And then if you know if it looks slow, doesn't look athletic, then the med ball is too heavy. So, you know, I know you can use some hard data. And I know there's some med balls that have like a velocity measure on it um, that might help you as the coach understand like this person's throwing this med ball at this speed at this weight, and you have a range of what you're looking for. I don't have any of that. I just kind of I guess eyeball and look at it. Now, now what about? Um like injury risk for for certain lifts. Um, I know like for some, like Olympic lifts, one of the reasons you choose not to use them for baseball players is because baseball players already have huge stress on wrists and elbows and shoulders. And um, as much as Olympic lifts might be great for developing power, there's better options to not stress wrists, elbows, and shoulders in baseball players. Is that a, a, something you're thinking about? Yeah, absolutely, John. Um, Pretty much what we're talking about when choosing exercises, we have to look at pros and cons. Okay, we can all agree probably on the pros of Olympic lifting. Nick, what are two pros of Olympic lifting? High force, teaches intent, move as much weight as possible, as fast as possible. And you Builds can eccentrically power. control load. And there's like, a, and there's a deceleration load acceptance, on the, uh, acceptance right. Right. load acceptance, yep. which is which is great for certain sports. Certain sports, right. I would I would argue certain sports. Um, right, they're 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 also they're 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 great power exercises, and there's tons of research on them, yeah. and and they're showing of high amounts of power produced during Olympic lifting variations. So we're definitely not knocking Olympic lifting. We love it. No, yeah, no, it's not. They're not bad exercises. Um, what about hang clean for baseball players? So yeah, getting getting back, and that was kind of John's question: is getting back to Olympic lifting for baseball players is again you have to look at the pros and cons. So like. Pretty much what we just stated, pros of Olympic lifting, were its ability to produce power. 
right? That that's the first pro of Olympic lifting. So um, you know, after that, other pros, you know, really don't really help baseball players too much. Even from a plane standpoint, they're really producing power mostly vertical, right? Would you guys agree? Most of the force produced in Olympic lifting is vertical power. Um, and to be honest, if you're looking at which isn't bad. I'm not saying vertical power for baseball players is, is not is not needed to, to play. Um, it's just not it's not as needed as rotational and frontal plane power is, which is what you get in other exercises. Sure. So if you're if you're trying to you know I hate this word be as specific as possible to the sport of baseball, you know, the Olympic lifting just they just don't there's very little carryover. You know, to to producing power in the plane that is required to play baseball. There's, I'm sure, there's carryover from other benefits, being athletic, producing high amounts of power, but there's there's no rotational component to it. Um, so you know, that's how I'm looking at it. Is pros and cons. Pros of a med ball toss. Pros of a, a hang clean. Okay, what are the cons of a hang clean? All right, John. John mentioned a few: wrists, fingers, elbow valgus. You know, um, I think Mike Rinald just did a great um, podcast on Olympic lifting for baseball players. I don't know if you guys caught that at all. Um, he explains pretty much what I'm going to explain, you know, the same exact thing where, um, you know, the carrying angle, the elbows are different. Um, it's hard from a flexibility standpoint to get baseball players. If you haven't done them, get the two fingers, get the three fingers underneath the barbell. You know, it's very, it's just very uncomfortable. Um, for someone who hasn't done it, who you're asking to do it, who might be 19, 20 years old, um, you know. So again, it's just it's pros and cons to me. And to me, the the pros of doing Olympic lifting variations aren't worth it. It's pretty much what it comes down to to me. So, so what sports are you choosing? Maybe making the choice that choice that Olympic lifting is the best way to develop power. So. The, the, the main sports that I would probably recommend using Olympic lifting would be sports, and we talked about the bar deceleration, are the sports that have high contact rates. So sports that have high contact rates, lacrosse and football, hockey, okay, are probably your top three contact sports. Those sports, you need to learn to accept a hit and accept force from someone, something, whatever it might be. So accepting a hang clean on the shoulders at 185, 225 is very similar to acccepting a hit from a 225 player coming tackling you. Creating stiffness. Right. So learning learning to, to, to accept force in the body, you know, take the barbell on the shoulders, whatever it might be, um, those would be my sports that I would probably recommend some some hang cleans for, some Olympic lifting variations for. Um because of that deceleration component as well. Um, and as well as both, all of those sports require high amounts of power to, to be produced as well. So pro, pro, do you get a rotational scoop toss deceleration component if you play football? No, not a good exercise selection for that player. Big con, I'm going to McLeft. That's great. Uh, Rob, we, we talked about this, I think, last week off camera, but... Um we were talking about, you know, when you have someone come come to you in an off season. How long is that usually, on average? How many how many weeks, how many months are, are people usually training with you? 
From a high school player high standpoint, sure, high school high school players, I'm um, probably seeing, on average, two to three months. Okay, two to three months on average. Some will be four to five. Some will be one to two. For an average standpoint, I'm seeing them probably after their fall season. You know, November, December, January, February, or December, yeah. January, February. Usually December, January, February. Probably those three months are. Um, on average, where I'm seeing high school kids, um, you know, pro guys, I'm seeing them from October to February, so yeah. a little bit of a longer time period. Yeah. So in your in your high school guys, high school guys, you have maybe time to run two to two to four blocks, like if you have a lot on the high right. end there. Yeah. Right? But you're looking at eight weeks of eight training, weeks training to get the most out of them, which is typical high school goals that I'm seeing are throw harder. So yeah. You know, you, they admit everyone wants to throw harder um, and that's these are the goals that I'm seeing so a big a big tool to train is power so if someone wants to throw harder we need to produce high amounts of power that's specific to the sport of baseball um, and that's going to get them the most bang for their buck without having to spend a lot of time learning technique I'll oftentimes spend eight weeks I'm not saying this because I'm a bad coach I'll often spend a lot of time perfecting someone's deadlift form in eight weeks which is a lot easier to do than a hand clean. Well, and wouldn't that be, would you consider that a prerequisite to teaching a hand clean? Absolutely. 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 You're going to get the most out of your, all of your power exercises if you can maintain a static hinge, you know, in a stable position. But uh, the reason I, I bring that up, Rob, is because we talked about how this might differ from, from setting to setting, right? I, I, again, and this is coming from someone who, you know, competes in Olympic lifting, is very comfortable teaching the Olympic lifts and teaching these foundational, you know, movements of the hinge squat, you know, press, but you got to take it and look at it in context. And, you know, Rob is dealing with, with players that are maybe in for two to three months. There's a limited time there. And that time is very valuable. And in that time, you have to create adaptation. You have to create, um, the attributes of fitness as, as we, as, as we've mentioned in past episodes, and I compare this to my time at Temple University with their strength conditioning department where you have someone who comes in and they're guaranteed four years there. The strength coaches and the, and the strength staff, and I, and I believe this is why you see a lot of um, collegiate um, strength conditioning, they're comfortable doing, uh, introducing Olympic lifts because it's long-term development. At Temple, this is what I really admired about the program, year one freshman we're perfecting the RDL, right? Maybe at the end of the first year, we're getting into an RDL shrug, right? We're doing, we're doing trap bar jumps. Right. You know, year two, hey, we're introducing the high pull and front squat as separate movements, yeah, right? So great. again, we're hitting these positions and the athlete doesn't even, doesn't, they're not, they don't know they're Olympic lifting, but there's, they're hitting these archetypes, right? They're hitting triple extension. We're getting a lot of weight on the bar and we're moving it with intent. Right? We're teaching these principles of intent and hitting the archetypes that you see in Olympic lifting. Hey, year three, guess what? Maybe we're doing a complex where it's a power clean or, or even a hang power clean with a front squat. You know, a hang snatch with overhead squat. You know, the, and again, it's not till year four where they have three years of strength training and hitting these positions that you're doing the full lifts. And now you're really able to create some power and create it safely. So, 
you know, kind of comparing, like, you can't just look at it and be like, Olympic lifts are bad or Olympic lifts are the best. Like, what setting are you in? What's the context? You know, what can you do to make this, again, this athlete the best of their sport? That was one of the biggest takeaways from my time there is I want everyone, and coming from an Olympic lifter, I want everyone to have the best clean, the best snatch in the world, but it doesn't mean diddly squat if they're not performing and creating attributes that help them in their sport. Well said. Yeah, that was gold. Yep. Anything else, guys? No. Excellent. That's a great way to end this week's episode. Again, um, if you like the content we're sharing, please share with your friends, guys, and, and every download helps. Um, so please help spread the word, and, and let's get us get us ranking higher. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you soon. Process is going to sure, guide your you intervention know when, a little bit. Where someone is in terms of you know, that acute phase, subacute, when you're you know out of that window and can really start to progress them. Um, I think so. You know, in that sense, yeah, state of the tissue in the healing um, phases. Yeah, because even if someone's looking really good, if you know where they are in the healing process, you have to you know hold them back a little bit. Um, I have a patient now who he's feeling really good and wants to do all this stuff. And he's like, no, not yet. You're still at this phase of healing and the tissue's still not solidified. Yeah. Yeah. Just knowing, yeah, knowing that, knowing their post-operative situation. I mean, maybe it's a shoulder. Maybe they got four anchors in their posterior labrum. Like, all right, maybe we don't want to stress that posterior capsule all that much, you know, early on. So, mm-hmm. you know, so it could be anything. Um, but basically, I think we all have a consensus of um, we're treating, don't let, diagnosis clouds your judgment take it as like just um, a piece of information and then we're traditionally or for the most part most of us are looking at the dysfunction and what may have led to the injury and then fixing that to get them out of the acute the acute or the chronic phase wherever they are Thanks again for listening, guys. Don't forget to please share with friends if you think we provide um, good quality content. And um, again, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Talk to you soon.